Tonight, the subject that we're going to study is very appropriate for the time that we're living in. We're going to talk about what Jesus said regarding religion and politics. And what we want to do is trace the life of Jesus and the conflicts, the controversies that he had both with church and state. Because the scenes that Jesus went through are the very scenes that his people are going to go through at the end of time. So if we know how the life of Jesus developed and how it culminated, we'll know exactly the situation that God's people will go through also in these last days. I'd like to begin by uh, turning in my Bible to Luke chapter 4, and I invite you to go there with me. Luke chapter 4 and verses 16 to 21. This is the beginning of the ministry of Jesus. And uh, Jesus is going to proclaim his agenda, what his agenda is all about. By the way, at his baptism, the Holy Spirit has been poured out without measure, and this is going to give Jesus power to preach and power to perform great signs and wonders. It says there in Luke chapter 4 and verse 16, So he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovery of the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And then, of course, the Bible tells us that Jesus went out and he taught with power, and he performed signs and wonders through the power of the Holy Spirit, which he had received at the moment of his baptism. Now, because of the power of the Holy Spirit, in his preaching and in the signs that he performed, the Bible tells us that multitudes started following Jesus. Notice Matthew chapter 4 and verse 25 on this point. Matthew chapter 4 and verse 25, when Jesus begins to fulfill his agenda that he had announced at the synagogue in Nazareth, we find that multitudes catch the Spirit and they start following him. Matthew chapter 4 and verse 25, it says, And great multitudes followed him from Galilee and from Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. Multitudes of people following Jesus, hungry for the word of God, and hungry for miracles that Jesus performed in the healing of the sick and the casting out of demons. But this popularity of Jesus very soon got him into deep trouble with the hierarchy, with the establishment, with the religious leaders of his day. It's a sobering fact, folks, that as you read the Gospels, you discover 
that the very people who professed to be the people of God, the very people who professed to be expecting the Messiah, the very people who professed to be living the religion of the Bible were the ones who fulfilled prophecy in destroying the Messiah. Now I want you to notice uh, some of the texts that speak about the trouble that Jesus got in and why he got into trouble. Matthew chapter 7 and verses 28 and 29. Matthew chapter 7 and verses 28 and 29. We've read this a long time ago in our lectures, but now we want to read it again. By the way, this is right after Jesus has given the parable of uh, the man who built his house upon the rock and the man who built his house upon the sand. You remember that the man who built his house upon the rock represents those who hear the word of Jesus and do it. They hear the word of Jesus and do it. Now the multitudes loved to sit and listen to Jesus, but they didn't like to listen to the scribes. Why? Notice Matthew chapter 7 and verse 28. And so it was, when Jesus had ended these sayings, that the people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. So the scribes began losing their authority because instead of teaching the word of God, what they did was teach the traditions of men. In a moment, we're going to notice that. You see, what gives power in preaching is not the preacher. What gives power in the preaching is the holy word of God. Where the word is preached, there is power. Where human beings simply speak their own opinions, there is no power. And that was the problem with the scribes. The scribes taught what the rabbis said. Jesus quoted written scripture. Jesus always said, it is written. And therefore his teaching was with authority and with power. Constantly, the religious leaders were asking Jesus where he got his authority from. Notice what it says in Mark chapter 11, Mark chapter 11, and let's read verses uh, 27 and 28. Mark 11, 27 and 28. Then they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests, those were, we would call them today, pastors, the scribes, Today we would call them the theologians. And the elders, we would call them the church administrators, came to him. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority to do these things? The reason why they asked Jesus that question is because Jesus had not studied in the schools of the rabbis. And yet he teaches with authority. So they want to know which rabbi did you study with which would give you authority to teach these things. Now let's go to Matthew chapter 23 and verse 2 and take a closer look at this idea of authority according to the scribes and the Pharisees. Matthew chapter 23 and verse 2. And what I want you to notice is that Jesus is in constant conflict with the religious leaders over the question of authority to teach. Notice Matthew chapter 23 
And let's read verse 1 and verse 2. Then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit where? On Moses' seat. Now I need to stop there for a minute and explain to you what Moses' seat is. See, this is a technical term in the days of Christ. Moses' seat, by the way, the Greek word here is cathedra. Have you ever heard the word cathedra? When the Pope speaks, he speaks how? Ex cathedra. That means he speaks from his throne. And his papal throne gives him what? Authority. And so in the times of Christ, the Bible says that the scribes and the Pharisees sat on Moses' seat. This supposedly gave them authority to teach. Now what does this mean, sitting on Moses' seat? You see, in Mark chapter 7, if you'll go there with me, Mark chapter 7, which we've already studied in another context, we notice that the Jews in the times of Christ had a very unique view of tradition. They believed that God at Mount Sinai had revealed to Moses, of course, the five books that we find in what is known as the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That was the written work of Moses. But they also believed that at Mount Sinai, God had given Moses many oral traditions which were only spoken to Moses, and Moses transmitted these teachings to the elders in his day. Those elders transmitted it to their successors, their successors transmitted it to their successors, and so on successively until the days of Christ. This was a type of what you might call apostolic succession. And I'd like to read from uh, the book by the Jewish scholar Marcel Simon, Jewish sects at the time of Jesus, he describes this. He says, an oral law was revealed to Moses along with the written law. And this oral law was faithfully transmitted from generation to generation. This is according to their view. The rabbinical treatise, Aboth, which means the fathers, formulates this Pharisaic theory of tradition and retraces the unbroken chain which, beginning with the lawgiver, linked each succeeding generation of doctors. And then Marcel Simon quotes from a Jewish source, Aboth, chapter 1 and verse 1, and here's the quote. Moses received the law from Sinai and committed it to Joshua, and Joshua to the elders, and the elders to the prophets, and the prophets committed it to the men of the great synagogue. In other words, the idea was that not only did people need to live by the written word of God given to Moses, but they needed to live in harmony with the traditions which supposedly had been given orally to Moses, transmitted by a succession of scholars from generation to generation all the way to the times of Christ. Of course, Christ rejected this idea of oral tradition. Jesus never quoted oral tradition. In fact, he rejected the traditions of the scribes and the Pharisees. We remember that we studied Mark chapter 7. There are certain technical terms. Notice verse 3. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding what? The tradition of the elders. And then verse 4, once again, has the same idea. 
when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other things which they have what? Received and hold. There you have the process of transmission once again. Verse 5, then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? These are the oral traditions. Notice verse 13, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition, which you have what? Handed down. There you have the technical terminology. Handed down, and many such things you do. Now, these oral traditions were not part of the word of God. They supposedly had been given to Moses. They supposedly had been passed down. Many of these traditions, in fact, 1,521 of them had been added to the Sabbath commandment. Imagine trying to keep the Sabbath commandment and keeping your eyes not only on remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, but trying to keep your eyes on 1,521 potential violations of the Sabbath commandment. And supposedly these were given to Moses, and they were transmitted from generation to generation, and many of these things they believed that at any point the scribes or the rabbis could discover these truths in the deposit of oral tradition. Very interesting, because there's a church in the world today that has the same view, and it's a worldwide church. It has the same idea of apostolic succession, and most of its doctrines are based not on the Word of God, but most of the doctrines are based on oral tradition, supposedly transmitted from the days of the apostles. Let me give you an example or a few examples of this idea, how oral tradition annuls the Word of God. We talked about Mark chapter 7. I'll just refresh your memory. You remember the law of Corban. Children could dedicate all of their possessions to the temple, but they could use it during their lifetime. When their parents said, hey, son, daughter, please help us because we're destitute, they would say, we can help you because we've dedicated it to the temple. In that way, the law of Corban, the tradition of Corban, annulled the commandment that says, honor your father and your mother. Notice another example. Go with me to John chapter 18 and verse 28. John chapter 18 and verse 28. This is when they've already snared Jesus. And uh, notice what it says here uh, in John 18, 28. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the praetorium. And it was early morning. Now notice this. But they themselves did not go into the praetorium, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. So don't go into a place where there are Gentiles, because you'll become defiled. But at this time, they're already planning to kill Jesus. Their hands are filled with blood. They don't want to be defiled by going into the praetorium, but it's okay to plot to kill Jesus. So their tradition is really annulling the commandment that says, Thou shalt not kill. You remember we studied Mark chapter 3 verses 1 to 6 where Jesus healed this man who had a withered hand. And they were watching him closely to see what he would do, to see whether he would heal this man on the Sabbath. And of course Jesus did. The Bible says that when Jesus healed this man, they went out and they plotted on how they could kill Jesus. You see, it was wrong to heal on Sabbath, but it was okay to plan to kill someone on Sabbath. So far go their traditions. 
that you couldn't heal on Sabbath. There's no text in the Bible that says that you cannot heal on the Sabbath. That was their tradition. And let me tell you something. The devil has cast the Sabbath in a negative light in the Christian world through the way in which the Pharisees adulterated the Sabbath commandment. The Christian world, when they see the Sabbath, they think that the Sabbath of the Pharisees is the Sabbath of the Lord. And therefore, they throw out the proverbial baby with the bathwater. They throw out not only the Sabbath of the scribes and Pharisees, but they also throw out the Bible Sabbath, the Sabbath of the Lord your God. So Jesus got into serious trouble because he went by it is written. He didn't go by the traditions of that day and age. And so they were constantly asking him, now do you sit on Moses' seat? Where do you get your authority from? You didn't go to the schools of the rabbis. How is it that you have a right to teach? In other words, the great conflict between Jesus and them was over the word of God. Now the Bible tells us that Jesus, through his ministry, soon started stealing, if we can use in quotation marks the word stealing, he started stealing the sheep of the scribes and the Pharisees. Notice what it says in Mark chapter 11 and verse 18. Mark chapter 11 and verse 18. When Jesus speaks with authority and with power, the people follow him. The people are hungry and thirsty for the truth. It says there in Mark chapter 11 and verse 18, And the scribes and the chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him, for they feared him because all the people were astonished at his teaching. Now, interestingly enough, the Bible tells us that in the Jewish religion of Christ's day, there were many different denominations. There were many different sects. We might call them today churches. You see, there's one Christian church, but within the Christian church, there are denominations or religious sects. Or religious denominations. The same was true in the days of Jesus. They were all Jews. They all professed the Jewish religion. But there were Sadducees. There were Pharisees. Pharisees and Sadducees hated each other because their theological uh, teachings were different. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection. The Sadducees did not. The Pharisees believed in spirits. The Sadducees did not. And so uh, the Pharisees, by the way, believed in all of the Old Testament as inspired. The Sadducees only believed that the writings of Moses were inspired. And so there you have liberals and conservatives, so to speak, in the days of Christ. Denominations all fighting with each other. But you know, when it came to destroying public enemy number one, there was a tremendous ecumenical movement in the days of Jesus. They disagreed on their theology, but they all decided to come together to destroy the one who in their minds was public enemy number one. Notice what it says in Luke chapter 23 and verse 12. Do you know that Herod and Pilate did not like each other? They were enemies. But you know, it's interesting that when uh, the crisis came in connection with the Lord Jesus, individuals who were enemies became friends. You have this ecumenical movement, this movement to unite Notice uh, Luke chapter 23 and verse 12. It says there, speaking about when Jesus is handed over to Pontius Pilate, that very day Pilate and Herod became friends with each other. For before that they had been at 
enmity with each other. When it comes to delivering Jesus and getting rid of Jesus, they come into harmony. By the way, Mark chapter 3 and verse 6 tells us that the Herodians and the Pharisees also came together to attack the Lord Jesus. Now it's interesting, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Herodians, Pilate, Herod, they were all enemies of one another, but when it came to getting rid of the one who preached the word of God with the authority of God, they all banded together with one purpose and with one mind. You see, Jesus also embarrassed the religious leaders very frequently because they would ask him questions and he would answer the questions in such a way that they uh, never felt like asking a question again. Notice what it says in Matthew chapter 22 and verse 46. Because he had the authority of the word of God. Jesus always said it is written. For example, the Sadducees came and tried to trick Jesus. You know this story about the woman uh, who uh, was married to a certain man. And uh, the man died and then she married another one up to the number seven. And so the Sadducees who didn't believe in the resurrection, they say, now you tell me, Lord Jesus, uh, to whom is this uh, woman going to be married in the day of the resurrection? And Jesus said, two problems that you have. Number one, you ignore the scriptures. And secondly, you ignore the power of God. The power of God because the Bible says that God is going to resurrect the dead. And the scriptures... Because the scriptures would never say that God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob unless God was going to resurrect them someday. Because God is not the God of the dead, God is the God of the living. And so Jesus quoted scripture, and these men were embarrassed because of his source of authority. Notice what it says in Matthew chapter 22 and verse 46, after Jesus once again has embarrassed them. It says, and no one was able to answer him a word nor from that day on did anyone dare question him anymore. Now the Bible tells us that spies were constantly sent by the religious leaders to check out Jesus to see how they could deliver him, to catch him slipping up in some way. Notice Luke chapter 20, Luke chapter 20 and verse 20. Very important verse. It shows us what the Lord Jesus had to go through. Luke chapter 20 and verse 20. 20. Day in and day out, it says, so they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be righteous. Oh, so you had individuals who are infiltrating the circle of Jesus, feigning to be disciples. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be righteous, that they might seize on his words in order to deliver him to the power and the authority of whom? The authority of the governor. So this conflict continues in the life of Jesus between the scribes and the Pharisees who go by tradition and Jesus who goes by the word of God. Now we must come to the end of the life of Jesus and see how his final events develop because God's people are going to go through the same events all over again. Turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 18 and verse 31. John chapter 18 and verse 31. This is the culmination of the controversy between Jesus and the religious leaders over the Word of God primarily. The Jews have come into Pilate's court, and now Pilate says to them, You take him 
and judge him according to your law. Let me just share something with you. Let's finish reading the verse. It says, Therefore the Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to what? To death. Let me share this with you. Do you know that practically every accusation which was leveled against Jesus when he was in Pilate's court had to do with the first table of God's holy law? Now you know the law of God has two tables, right? Two tables of stone. The first table has four commandments and the second table has six. God's table, actually it's both of them are God's law, but in terms of governance, the first table, the first four commandments are the realm of God, my relationship with God. The last six commandments have to do with relationships on a horizontal level between people. In other words, the first table of the law is God's exclusive realm. The second table of the law is Caesar's or the government's table of the law because the government is to preserve the civil order. Does the government, for example, have a law, thou shalt not kill? Yes. Does it have a law that says that you cannot bear false witness and destroy your neighbor's character? Yes. Does it have a law against spousal and parent abuse? Yes. In other words, the last six commandments are the realm of Caesar, and the first four commandments are the realm of God. And Caesar, or the government, has nothing to say about the first four commandments of God's law. If you want to worship this lamp, you can do that. The government cannot say anything about it. If you don't want to keep any day, it's your prerogative. If you want to keep Wednesday as a day of worship, you can do that if you want. If you want to go out on the street and if you want to say, Hey, I'm God, you can do that. If you want to swear the air blue by using the name of the Lord God in vain, even though we might not like it, it's your prerogative because those commandments have to do with our relationship with God and Caesar can have absolutely nothing to say with the first four commandments, only with the last six because the last six preserve the civil order. And so you'll notice here that the Jews are coming to Pilate and almost all of the accusations that they're leveling against Jesus are violations of which table? Of the first table. They say he proclaimed himself to be what? To be God. He breaks what? The Sabbath. Uh, he has committed blasphemy because he says that he can forgive sins. And what does Pilate say when the Jewish leaders say this? They say, hey, listen, that's not my realm. That's not my problem. He says, you take him and judge him according to your law. Those are violations. Those are religious violations. Now, if you come and you say that he's killed somebody, that would be my realm. If you come and you say that he's born false witness, that would be my realm. If you say that he committed parental abuse, then that would be my realm. But you're coming with accusations that have to do with your religion and with your God. I don't want anything to do with that. Let me ask you, was Pilate a pretty wise individual when it came to church and state issues? He most certainly was. A lot wiser than many Christians in the world today, I might say. And he was a pagan ruler. So it says in John chapter 18 and verse 31. Let's read that again. John chapter 18 and verse 31. The following. Then Pilate said to them, You take him and judge him according to your law. 
But what did they want? Why did they bring Jesus to Pilate? Because they wanted the death penalty, and they could not execute the death penalty. It says, therefore the Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to what? To put anyone to death. Notice also John chapter 19 and verse 7. The Jews answered him, we have a law. And according to our law. Are they saying that Caesar's law should punish Jesus with death? No. Whose law has Jesus violated according to them? Their law. And so we have a law, and according to our law, he ought to die. Because he made himself what? The Son of God. Pilate says, what does that have to do with me? I mean, come to me with civil disobedience. But don't come to me with he proclaimed himself the Son of God. That's your problem. You're expecting the Messiah to come? Okay, that's fine. If he claims to be the Messiah, then you take care of him. But they say the problem is that us as a church cannot execute the death penalty. And so do you know what they're going to do? They're going to mix with the state. They're going to use the state to accomplish their purposes. Notice Matthew chapter 27 and verses 1 and 2 on the process that was followed. Matthew chapter 27 and verses 1 and 2. It says, When the morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. Could they do it? Could they legally do it? No. And so verse 2, And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to whom? To Pontius Pilate, the governor. Have you ever noticed that Jesus went through a religious trial first and then he went through a civil trial? When he went through the religious trial, he was found guilty by the religious leaders. But because they could not execute the death penalty, because Jesus had not violated any of the civil laws of Rome, they knew that they had to get the civil government to cooperate with them to execute the death penalty. And so that's exactly what they did. They took Jesus after having tried him in their religious court and finding him guilty of a violation of the first table of the law, they took him to the civil court of Pontius Pilate to try and get the death penalty enacted against Jesus. Now folks, it's interesting that Pontius Pilate several times admitted that there was no fault in Jesus. This is very significant. Notice what it says in John chapter 19, John chapter 19 and verses 4 and 6. John chapter 19 and verses 4 and 6. Pilate then went out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find what? No fault in him. Verse 6. Therefore when the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, You take him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. Notice chapter 18 and verses 37 and 38. It says here, Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? 
Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I came into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in him. What this is saying is that the government condemned an innocent man. And by the way, if you examine the trial of Jesus, it was a travesty in justice. Both Roman and Hebrew law were violated with impunity. For example, a trial could not take place at night. And the trials of Jesus took place at night. Every effort needed to be made to determine that the individual was guilty before he was condemned. The prisoner was allowed to have witnesses. None of these things were done in the trial of the Lord Jesus. It was a travesty in justice. The church acting upon the state to get rid of public enemy number one because he had gained the multitudes behind him because he taught with power and with authority from the Holy Word of God. Now the question is, if Jesus was innocent the way the government said, why did Pilate deliver him? I want you to notice John chapter 19 and verse 12 on this point. This is a sobering idea, folks, particularly in the United States of America where the people have such a strong influence upon their legislators. Do you know that what's going to happen in this country is that there's going to be an uprising by the multitudes or by the people in the United States. They're going to act upon their rulers, demanding that something be done. And the Bible says that God's faithful people, God's faithful remnant, are going to be delivered even though they have broken no laws of the civil government. Notice what it says in John chapter 19, and verse 12. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out saying, If you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. In other words, what the multitude is saying is that unless you condemn this innocent man, we are going to have you removed from what? From office. In other words, political expediency is what led Pilate to condemn an innocent man because he was influenced by the leaders of the church of that day and by the multitudes who belonged to that church to condemn this man who had done nothing wrong except base his teachings upon the holy word of God. Now folks, in all of this situation, there was really another power that was working. You see, we talked this morning about the threefold union that arose to destroy Elijah or to persecute Elijah in the Old Testament. Same threefold union which killed the New Testament Elijah. The same threefold union at the end of time which is going to try and kill God's end time remnant or worldwide Elijah. But do you know that in the case of Jesus there was also a threefold union? The devil works in threes and God works in threes. God is a trinity, so the devil has his trinity. God has three angels, and so in Revelation 14, there are three evil spirits, like frogs, that proclaim the devil's message. 
So the devil mirrors what God has. Now what were the three enemies in the case of Jesus? And by the way, these three enemies bear the same relationship as the three enemies that Elijah had. Who were the ones who particularly wanted the death of Jesus? The religious leaders, the pastors, the administrators, the theologians. Time and again, the Bible speaks of the elders, the scribes, the Pharisees being opposed to Jesus. They wanted to execute the death penalty. Could they execute the death penalty? No. Who did they need? They needed the government. But listen up. They also needed someone to deliver Jesus to them so that the government could take care of him. And who was that instrument that delivered Jesus to them? Judas Iscariot. Do you see the same relationship? The same pattern in which the devil works? In fact, what was happening to Jesus was choreographed from behind the scenes by the devil, by Satan. Notice what it says in Luke chapter 22 and verse 53. Luke chapter 22 and verse 53. Jesus is speaking about the moment when he's going to go into his final trial. And he says here the following. Chapter 22 and verse 53. When I was with you daily in the temple... You did not try to seize me, but this is your hour. And then what does it say? And the power of darkness. So who is the power behind this threefold union to destroy Jesus? Satan. Do you think the devil hates the word of God? Does he use religious leaders to oppose the word of God? Does the devil hate God's holy Sabbath? Yes, that's why he led the Pharisees to twist the meaning of the Sabbath. Because he knew that if he could do that, Christians would not want anything to do with the Sabbath. But it's not the Sabbath of Jesus. It's the Sabbath of the Pharisees. We need to return to the Bible Sabbath. The Sabbath of the Lord our God. By the way, do you know that in chapter 6 and verse 70 of John, Jesus said that one of his disciples was a devil? And do you know that in John chapter 13 and verse 2, it tells us that the devil entered Judas when Judas was going to deliver Jesus? Do you know that in John chapter 8 and verse 44, Jesus said to the Jewish people who were there, who were going to deliver him, and at this time they were thinking about doing it, he said, you are of your father the devil. The devil is a murderer from when? A murderer from the beginning. And by the way, do you know what Judas is called? For those of you who think that Antichrist is going to be some atheist who's going to sit in the Jerusalem temple and he's going to have a big crown with the number 666 on his crown and he's going to build a great big image over there in the temple for people to worship, think again. That is just too obvious. The devil does not work in such an obvious fashion. He works underground. He's called the serpent. Notice what the Bible calls Judas in John chapter 17 and verse 2. John chapter 17 and verse 2. Real eye opener. And I'm sure that you've read it before. John 17 and verse, not verse 2, but verse 12. It says here, John 17, 12. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept. And none of them is lost except 
the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Do you know that there's only one other place in the whole Bible where the name son of perdition is used? And that is in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 where it speaks about the final Antichrist which will arise in this world. So the final Antichrist will be like whom? Like Judas Iscariot because he's called by the same name, the son of perdition. Let me ask you, what kind of enemy was Judas Iscariot? He was an atheist. Did Judas Iscariot profess to be religious? Did he walk among the disciples? Did he claim to be a follower of Jesus? Did he betray Jesus with a kiss? So in other words, the Antichrist is going to be like Judas, not one who arises from outside the church, but one who claims to serve Christ and arises within the Christian church. Are you with me? I want you to notice the argument that Caiaphas uses to try and destroy Jesus. John chapter 11. John chapter 11. And let's read verses 47 to 53. John 11 verses 47 to 53. Here, this is after the resurrection of Lazarus. And now they say we're going to have to take care of this fellow because everybody's following him. In fact, it says in John chapter 12 and verse 19 that... You know, if we allow him to exist, the whole world is going to believe in him. Praise the Lord. Not according to them. Notice chapter 11 and verse 47. And by the way, this is the supreme pontiff that is speaking these words. The high priest. It says here in verse 47, Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, What shall we do? For this man works many signs. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Irony of ironies. They said, we need to get rid of Jesus so that the Romans won't destroy our nation. Well, they destroyed Jesus, and as a result, Rome destroyed them. What they expected to prevent by getting rid of Jesus is what they caused by getting rid of Jesus. Now notice what it says in verse 49. And one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish? In other words, we need to get rid of this man because if we don't, the whole nation is going to what? is going to perish. The Romans are going to destroy it. The state is going to destroy the church unless we get rid of this man. That argument is going to be used again against the remnant of God. You won't want to miss tomorrow night. The abomination of desolation is a continuation of what we're talking about tonight. A very, very important lecture. Notice what it continues saying here. In verse 51, nor did he say, uh, now, this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. Of course, he didn't know what he was talking about, but Jesus did die for the nation. Verse 52, and not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Then, from that day on, they plotted to what? They plotted to put him to death. And you know, the multitudes simply blindly followed their religious leaders. 
They didn't think for themselves. They didn't study for themselves. If their leader said, you know, this man is public enemy number one, they said, let's get rid of him. Instead of studying on their own and reaching their own conclusions, they blindly followed their leaders. Notice this detail in Matthew chapter 27 and verse 20. Matthew chapter 27 and verse 20. Folks, if it had not been for the religious leaders, the world would have seen the greatest reformation in the history of the world. But the religious leaders shut out the light so that it would not shine on their flocks. Notice Matthew chapter 27 and verse 20. But the chief priests and elders persuaded whom? The multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas and what? And destroy Jesus. Now let's talk a little bit about the choice between Jesus and Barabbas. Luke chapter 23, verses 18 and 19, tell us that Barabbas was in prison because he had caused a sedition against Rome. In other words, he had caused an insurrection. Was Barabbas the type of Messiah that the Jews wanted? Yes, because his idea was to take arms and to destroy the hated Romans and to rule in an earthly political kingdom. And so when it came to choosing Jesus and his spiritual kingdom, or Barabbas and the kingdom, the literal earthly kingdom that they expected the Messiah to take control over, the choice was very easy. They chose Barabbas. In fact, they went so far as to say, we have no king but Caesar. When they allied themselves that way with the state, they resigned the theocracy. They rejected God as their leader. And they totally became identified with the state. And of course, the last step would be the destruction of Jesus. How did Jesus look at this issue of church and state? Folks, Jesus had it very clear. He said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. You see, if my kingdom was of this world, Jesus said to Pilate in John 18, verse 37, my disciples would what? They would fight for my kingdom. But he says, my kingdom is not of this world. You remember that in the Garden of Gethsemane, when the soldiers came to arrest Jesus, Peter took out his sword and he cut off Malchus's, the servant's ear. And believe me, he wasn't aiming for his ear. He was aiming for his head. The only problem is he was a fisherman, not a soldier. And so he missed and when Peter did that, Jesus says to the other disciples, What's wrong with you? Come on, defend me with the sword. Is that what Jesus said? Jesus says to Peter, Put away that sword. My kingdom does not function in that fashion. You remember one time Jesus and the disciples were walking and there were certain cities that had rejected Jesus. And the disciples say, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to burn them up? Jesus says, hey, that's a great idea. Force them, compel them to follow me. Is that the way it works? No. You see, it does no good to take control of the political structure of the world because the civil powers function on the basis of force. Not on the basis of love implanted in the heart of man. Christ's spiritual kingdom, as Jesus said in Luke 17, 21, 
He said, the kingdom of God is within you. And listen, folks, before you can enjoy the kingdom of glory, you have to have the kingdom of grace and the kingdom of humility in your heart because that's what prepares you for the kingdom of glory. But the Jews, they wanted the glory without the humility. They wanted the kingdom of glory without the kingdom of suffering. Jesus said, first of all, you have to have my kingdom in your heart, and then you'll be ready to have the glorious kingdom. So Jesus says, you don't know what spirit you're of. You're not of God's spirit, you're of the devil's spirit. In the last week of Jesus' life, they came to ask Jesus a question, should we pay tribute to Caesar or not? They thought they had Jesus up a creek without a paddle. Because if Jesus said, yes, the Jews would say, we don't like this guy because we hate paying taxes to Caesar. If he said no, they would say, ah, we have a perfect way of condemning Jesus before Pilate because he said you're not supposed to pay taxes to Rome. So Jesus says, listen, bring me a coin. They bring him a coin. He looks at it. He says, whose superscription is this? They say Caesar's. And Jesus says, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and unto God the things that are God's. In this way, the Lord Jesus separated what? Church and state. If church and state had not been joined together, Jesus would have never been killed. But the sad fact, folks, is that the religious system of those days used the political structure to destroy Jesus. And when the Jews said, we want Barabbas instead of Jesus, they were saying, we want the kingdom of politics, we want the kingdom of force, we want the kingdom of the throne, the glorious throne, but we don't want the mysterious spiritual kingdom that is in the heart. Allow me to read you a statement from my favorite biography of Jesus. I'm referring to a book which is precious to me. The Bible is the most precious, but this is a precious book. It's called The Desire of Ages. It's the most wonderful biography that has ever been written about Jesus. It is just phenomenal. You have to get a copy of it. Listen to what the author says. This is on page 509. On this issue of the relationship between church and state. Do you know what force does? Forcing people by the power of the state forms either hypocrites or martyrs. But not true believers in Jesus. Hypocrites, because people will say, oh, I'll follow that religion, because they're afraid of dying. Martyrs, because if you say, we will not be forced, you get killed. Force never changes the lives of people. That's why it's wrong in the United States for the religion, religious leaders of this country to want to take over the reins of the government. You cannot moralize America by controlling the government. The way you can moralize America is preaching from the pulpit and having the Holy Spirit come into the hearts of people to transform their lives. Because the transformation does not come from outside in, it comes from inside out. Notice what she says, but today in the religious world there are multitudes who as they believe are working for the establishment of the kingdom of Christ as an earthly and temporal dominion. They desire to make our Lord the ruler of the kingdoms of this world, the ruler in its courts and camps, its legislative halls, its palaces and marketplaces. 
They expect him to rule through legal enactments enforced by human authority. Since Christ is not now here in person, they themselves will undertake to act in his stead to execute the laws of his kingdom. The establishment of such a kingdom is what the Jews desired in the days of Christ. They would have received Jesus had he been willing to establish a temporal dominion to enforce what they regarded as the laws of God and to make them the expositors of his will and the agents of his authority. But he said, my kingdom is not of this world. He would not accept the earthly throne. But let me tell you something, shortly afterwards there was one who accepted the earthly throne. See, the devil offered Jesus the earthly throne in the wilderness and Jesus said no. But later on, just a while after Jesus ascended to heaven, there was one in Rome who was offered the earthly throne and he accepted She continues saying, the government under which Jesus lived was corrupt and oppressive. On every hand were crying abuses, extortion, intolerance, and grinding cruelty. Yet the Savior attempted no civil reforms. Did you ever see Jesus picketing against slavery? Did you ever see Jesus picketing against abortion, which was very common in the days of the Roman Empire? No. Say, why? Didn't Jesus care? He sure did. I'm pro-life. I'm pro-prayer. I'm pro-Bible study. You see, the government can't enforce those things. It does no good. Because prayer and Bible and all of these things have to come from your heart. He continues saying he attacked no national abuses, nor condemned the national enemies. He did not interfere with the authority or administration of those in power. He who was our example kept, uh, kept aloof from earthly governments. And then she explains why. Not because he was indifferent to the woes of men, but because the remedy did not lie in merely human and external measures. To be efficient, the cure must reach men individually and must regenerate the heart. Not by the decisions of courts or councils or legislative assemblies, not by the patronage of worldly great men is the kingdom of Christ established, but by the implanting of Christ's nature in humanity through the work of the Holy Spirit. Now folks, this whole story that we've looked at is going to be repeated in the end times. Sadly but truly. We studied it briefly at the end of the presentation this morning. The book of Revelation chapter 17 speaks about a harlot which must represent an apostate church because in prophecy a woman represents a church. This is a church that has abandoned the ways of Jesus. A church that exerts worldwide dominion. And this church is going to join the kings of the earth according to what we studied this morning. And through her daughters, and they play the role of Judas, God's holy people will once again go through the trials that Jesus went through. Once again, church and state will be joined together 
with the idea that it's going to bring a great blessing in these United States. But like with the Jews, what they thought was a blessing became a curse. And the very government that they wanted to use to destroy Jesus was a government which destroyed them. At the end of time, the same thing is going to happen all over again. Folks, we live in the greatest country on planet Earth, the United States of America. And I know that many of you probably are from other countries and you say that's kind of arrogant, but let me tell you why. It's not because this is the richest nation in the world. It's not because this is the most beautiful country in the world. There are beautiful countries. I mean, you go through Switzerland, you're left speechless because of the beauty. It's not because the people in the United States are nicer than any other place. Let me tell you, this is the greatest country because of the principles upon which this country was built. Divine principles. Our founding fathers realized that it was necessary to separate the church from the state. And therefore, in our Constitution, they drafted the words, Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion nor prohibiting the free exercise thereof. It has an establishment clause. The government has nothing to do with establishing religion. It doesn't say a religion or a church. It says religion. And also, it has no right forbidding the free exercise of religion. In other words, the government is to govern in civil affairs and the church is to govern in spiritual affairs. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. You see, our founding fathers were closer to what had happened in Europe during the Middle Ages. They knew the results of union of church and state. They knew about the Inquisition. If you read about the Inquisition, it's amazing, folks. The Inquisition functioned on the same principles as what led to the betrayal of Jesus. First, the individual was tried before a religious court. He was given no rights to have anybody as a witness. His goods were confiscated. And then, if he was found guilty in the court of the Inquisition, he was delivered to the secular power to be exterminated. Identical. What happened in the Middle Ages. And folks, let me tell you this. The greatest enemies of God's people have been God's people. From the days of Cain and Abel, the first murder in human history, both of them claimed to serve and worship the true God. But one worshiper arose to kill the other one because the other one worshiped the way God said you're supposed to worship. Who were the greatest enemies of the prophets in the Old Testament? It wasn't the Babylonians and the Egyptians and the Assyrians. Those who wanted to kill the prophets were the people to whom they were sent, God's own people. Who were the ones who killed Jesus, who destroyed Jesus? The very people who claimed to serve God. Who persecuted the church during the Middle Ages? The church that claimed to be the church of Jesus Christ. What makes you think that it's going to be any different at the end of time? Notice what it says in John chapter 16. John chapter 16 and verses 1 and 2. Here Jesus is speaking prophetically and he says the following. John chapter 16 verses 1 and 2. These things I have spoken to you that you should not be made to stumble. They will put you out of the synagogues. Today we would say the church. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think 
that he offers God service. And tomorrow in our study we're going to notice that in Matthew chapter 24, children will arise to betray their parents. Parents, their children, relatives and friends will give one another up to the civil powers and to the religious powers to be destroyed. You say that could never happen in these United States of America. We live in the 20th century at the apex of civilization. Have you forgotten that in the 20th century, in the 1940s, you had the Holocaust? In this civilized world that we live in? Have you forgotten that in many more recent countries there has been genocide? The heart of man can be very cruel when it's destitute of the Spirit of God. Back to the United States, greatest country that has ever existed because of the principles that it has separates church and state. Our founding fathers knew what Europe was like. They said, we don't want that pattern here because it leads to hypocrites and martyrs. It leads to persecution. By the way, many of the religious leaders in the United States today want us to go back to colonial times. When I talk about the founding fathers, I'm not talking about the colonial America. I'm talking about the America where the Constitution is drafted, where the Declaration of Independence is signed. Because colonial America was a reflection of Europe. You could be killed for not going to church on Sunday. Did you know that? In these United States of America? You could be fined. Your goods could be confiscated if you didn't support the clergy through your tithes. Is that the kind of America you would like to live in? I don't think so. You see, the devil knows that the separation of church and state is the secret of the power of this country. That's why he's doing everything in his power to join it together. And it starts out first with small things. Vouchers for the government to support your children in religious schools. That's an entanglement of church and state. You say, well, it's $4,000 in my pocket. What does it profit a man if he gains $4,000 and loses his soul? What are you going to say someday when you're arrested because you keep the Lord's Sabbath, because you're faithful to God, and you say, I believe in the separation of church and state. You can't dictate what I'm supposed to do. Well, according to our records, you received $4,000 several years in a row from the government in vouchers to teach your kids in religious schools. Ooh, ouch. What are you going to say? Using government money to subsidize charitable organizations. Mandating prayer in public schools including biblical curriculum. You say, well, pastor, you're against all of these things. No, all of these things are religious things that belong in the home, that belong in church. And the problems that this country has, folks, are not due to what the government has done. It's due to the breakdown of the family. It's due to the breakdown of the church. It's due to the breakdown of the spiritual structures of society. You can make laws in the United States Congress until you're blue in the face. It will do nothing until the hearts of people are changed by Jesus Christ. So we're close to repeating the scenes of the life of Jesus. The day is coming when we preach God's message with power as it's found in the Bible, the Sabbath the judgment, our message.
as well as all of the other truths that we've been studying in this seminar, the day is coming when all of these things are going to be forbidden. And we're going to repeat the scenes that Jesus went through. That's the reason why in Revelation 18, the Lord Jesus said, come out of her, my people. Come out of Babylon. This threefold union. The harlot, the daughters of the harlot that were born from her and share her same views about the day of worship, about the dead, and so many other things. Come out of her, my people, that you do not become a partaker of her sins and you do not receive her plagues. Do you wish to respond to the voice of Jesus tonight and say, through the grace of God, I will come out of Babylon and I will be a member of God's remnant that will preach the truth of God through the power of the Holy Spirit, no matter what it might cost. Are you willing to take that step tonight? If that's your wish, I would ask you to stand at this moment as we close with a word of prayer. Praise the Lord. It's an exciting time to live in, isn't it? And by the way, let me say something. There might be people here who have never been baptized. Or there might be people who have been baptized who never knew any of the things that we've studied in this seminar. You didn't even know that there was a remnant church that preaches the truth of God as it's found in the Bible, the commandments of God, the Sabbath, what happens when a person dies, and so many other things that we've studied. I would encourage you, if the Lord touches your heart and you feel like God is speaking to you tonight, that you will speak to me or to one of the pastors on our staff so that we can study with you and prepare you for baptism. Not maybe to join Christ, because if you were already baptized, you joined Jesus as your Savior. But now you know about a church that teaches the truth of God. And if we know about that message, we're going to want to join that movement to proclaim God's message to the world. And so I would encourage you to speak to one of the pastors on the staff. We'll be glad to sit down and study with you, answer any questions that you might have in order to prepare you so that you can join this wonderful movement that preaches the three angels' messages to every corner of planet Earth. Let us pray. Father, we've studied a strong message tonight. I pray to you that no one will leave this place offended because that hasn't been the purpose. The purpose has been to study the truth as it's found in your word. I ask, Lord, that if there's anybody gathered here this evening who has been offended through the influence of your spirit you will come you will soften their hearts you will help them to see the truth as it is in Jesus Lord there are many people here tonight that probably have not made a decision either to get baptized or to join your remnant movement I ask Lord that you will give them the courage to say yes we want to join this remnant movement that proclaims God's full message to the world in these last days we thank you, Lord, for the marvelous treasure that you have given us in your word. What a tremendous blessing it is. We don't have to fear what's coming because it's all in your holy word. Thank you for your holy word. And help us to live in harmony with it, Lord. We thank you for hearing our prayer and for answering. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.